Well, I am thankful that God is in control. I am thankful that he has a plan. Uh, even if we don't see what that plan is, that he still has it, he's still working it, he, nothing will thwart it. He still sits on his throne, and we have every reason to continue to worship him because of that and for that. Not only that, but his love is so tremendous that he gave his son for us. He gave his son to die for us so that we could spend an eternity with him. Our God is the most powerful being we could ever think of. Our God is the one who made miracle after miracle after miracle happen, and still does today. And our God found us where we were, and he saved us, and he's changing us more into the likeness of his son. And so because of that, we can always worship him because he is our God. Then what can stand, stand, stand if our God is for 
Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that things are strange and they are different. They are painful. There are many, many people going through many, many difficult and painful things right now. But Lord, we rejoice that you are in control. We rejoice that you are God and we rejoice that you have a plan. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. That your word would go forth, your spirit would go forth, our hearts would be touched, our lives would be changed. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been keeping up with news articles to a greater or a lesser extent of how this current health crisis is impacting families and individuals in our country, it's hard to digest. It is. We're also dealing with the pandemic's impact on our own families, loss of life, loss of income, a large amount of stress, and a fear of the unknown. The negative impacts of this virus are obvious and they're in our faces. They're hard to see past. Most of how we're relating to everything going on in our lives, our community, and our country are based on the blatant and overwhelmingly difficult and heartbreaking things that we feel and see. It's only natural and it's only logical. And as this weekend is Mother's Day, as mothers and to parents in general, you have a lot on your plate right now. At this point, both Pennsylvania and New Jersey have decided that students will not return to school through the rest of the school year. So your kids are home, for better or for worse. And you worry. You worry for your family's safety. You worry for your family's provision and what this future coined the new normal will be like. Again, it's only natural and it's only logical. Last week during our midweek audio devotional, we talked about a profound question that Jesus asked of his disciples and the radically powerful answer that he received from one disciple in particular, Peter. If you missed that devotional message, it's up on our, our, our podcast platforms, our website, and our Facebook page. There is so much more to this passage of Scripture that, we'll, that we get into in that audio devotional. But what I want to focus on for a couple minutes here is the question Jesus asked and the response Peter gave before we move into the passage for today. After asking the question to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And getting the usual, natural, run-of-the-mill, albeit blatantly wrong, answers, Jesus then makes it personal. And he asks his closest companions, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We don't know if any of the other disciples, other than Peter, spoke up or what they said. But what stands out from everyone else was what Peter exclaimed. With Peter's declaration, we find out the basic faith that Peter had at this point. Peter declares, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the son of the living God. We talked last week about how the terms Christ and Messiah meant the same thing. The first being the Greek version and the second being the Hebrew version. But they were saying the exact same thing. Essentially, by Peter declaring to Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. He's declaring faith in everything the Old Testament or Jewish Bible said about the Messiah. 
that he would be the universal king and God himself. Peter then made the connection between the fact that Jesus was God and how he related to God the Father by referencing the Old Testament prophecies connecting the Messiah to God the Father through sonship. The whole powerful point that Peter was admitting was that Jesus was beyond any prophet, beyond any king or rabbi or Pharisee or member of the Sanhedrin or any kind of Jewish leader up to that point. Jesus wasn't any one of those categories. He was a prophet. He was a king. He was a teacher. But he was God beyond all of that. He was God. No one else had the guts to declare that, even if they believed it. Peter was the first one to make this declaration, and that is what is so huge about it. This is the height of Peter's faith and Jesus' commendation for it. I mean, what else does Peter have in, in his relationship with Jesus? He's got sinking in the waves. He's got blurting out a bunch of things that he didn't really think about before he said them. He, and then he, he's got denying Jesus three times. But here in Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter and his faith such high commendation that he tells Peter that when Jesus builds his church upon himself, Peter would have the privilege of carrying out within that church what God decides in heaven. That was that, that was huge. And in fact, Peter gets to be the first one to preach to thousands of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters that the Holy Spirit had arrived on the day of Pentecost and how they could have forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ. And I wanted to set all of that up because what Matthew records for us next in his gospel in Matthew 16 is the complete opposite of this height and Peter's relationship with Jesus. But it directly connects to what we're going through right now in the midst of this crisis. Immediately following the height of Peter's faith in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, there is a major turning point in Jesus's ministry. Everything up to this point in Matthew 16, 21 was all about Jesus's miracles. It was all about his healing of people in hopeless situations multiplying a few pieces of food to feed thousands of people and teaching people about the love of God and what his kingdom was all about. Messianic fervor for Jesus is at an all-time high. And the disciples were all there to enjoy the ride. They were all just enjoying the ride. But here in Matthew 16, 21, everything changes. This is the first time Matthew records that Jesus reveals this news and the major turning point in his ministry. And in human history, we read in Matthew 16, 21, from then on, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. 
He starts talking plainly about every single one of these things. That's huge. This is the first time any of Jesus' disciples have heard any of this. After giving everything up for him, this is the first time the disciples are hearing about any of this. Talk about, uh, okay, I didn't know I signed up for that. And what Jesus tells his disciples is weirdly specific, isn't it? Not only did Jesus plainly reveal that all of this would happen in Jerusalem, but that he would be ultimately killed. That certainly not what any one of these disciples wanted to hear at that point. If any of this actually happened, what would happen to them? They had given up everything to follow Jesus and were obviously identified with him. What was going to happen to them? So it's no wonder that the very next thing that happens after the first time Jesus reveals this, that this happens in Matthew 16, 22. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. According to one biblical scholar, Peter was probably so shocked at hearing these, all these terrible things and that they would happen to Jesus and that he would ultimately be killed that he probably didn't hear or even process that Jesus also did, said that he was going to rise from the dead. This is ultimately juxtaposed right after the height of Peter's faith. He goes from the top of the mountain to ripping himself off the precipice and throwing himself down into the deepest valley. But it's not surprising. Imagine feeling what the disciples were feeling at this point. They were expecting Jesus to claim his kingship, drive out the Romans, and they were privileged enough to be a part of that uprising. After all, they would soon enough all be arguing about who will get to sit on either side of Jesus in the new kingdom. This messianic king was not supposed to die. He wasn't supposed to die. He wasn't supposed to be a gigantic failure and ruin everything they had been building up in their minds all this time. He was supposed to be victorious. He was supposed to be successful and reward all of them for their loyalty. That is what was going through Peter's mind when he took Jesus aside and told him to stop thinking such negative thoughts. Get those out of your head, Jesus. They're all just negativity. Don't worry about that, Lord, Peter says. Nothing's anywhere as bad as you think it will be. And nothing's going to turn out the way you think it will. Because what would that mean? What would that mean for you? And more importantly, what would that mean for me? But Jesus turns to him and says one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture in Matthew 16, 23. Get away from me, Satan. How'd you like to be told that? Get away from me, Satan. Now here, according to biblical scholarship, Jesus is not just being an unnecessary jerk to Peter. He's actually speaking directly to Satan, who is using Peter as an instrument to try to, once again, derail God's plan. Satan has already tried to derail God's plan for Jesus back in Matthew 4 by presenting Jesus with three different temptations. He was obviously unsuccessful there. 
So Satan comes back with another tactic of derailing God's plan, and that was to use the guy who Jesus had just commended for his radical faith to try to dissuade Jesus from what he knew had to happen. And Jesus saw it from a mile away. That's why he speaks directly to Satan at first, and then addresses Peter next by saying, you are a dangerous trap for me. You are a dangerous trap to me. What Jesus says next to Peter is what I want to focus our devotional message on today and what directly relates to how we may be focused on in this crisis. Jesus says something very profound to Peter's denial of the bad things that needed to happen to Jesus. He says in Matthew 16, 23, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view not from God's. Matthew 16, 23. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Wow. And that's the key. We can't get all caught up with looking at everything we're experiencing and worrying about from a mere human point of view. Of course, if we look at everything from a human point of view, it is scary. It is something to worry about. No denying that. Why shouldn't we? It looks like everything is crumbling around us and going wrong. Nothing will be the same as it was just a few months ago. But we as believers in Jesus, we as followers in Jesus, have a tremendous gift. We have the gift of being able to trust in a plan that is beyond anything we can see, anticipate, or feel. We have the gift of being able to trust in a plan that is beyond anything any of our state governors or even the President of the United States has any control over. This plan was established before the foundations of the world were even laid. And this plan is perfect for it was established by the one who has infinite wisdom. God is not trying to figure everything out as he goes along, like we all are, <laughs> trying to figure out these uncharted waters. God is not trying to figure out everything as he goes along. He's already established a plan, and nothing will thwart it, just like Satan or Peter could not thwart his plan for Jesus. The disciples simply could not fathom God's plan. That was the problem. The disciples could not fathom God's plan. It did not make any sense to them as humans. And that's usually the point. God's plan usually goes against and even seemingly counterintuitive to what makes sense to us as humans. And it usually involves suffering. It usually involves suffering. So we shouldn't be surprised when we have to suffer. In fact, Jesus turns to all of his disciples at this point and says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. That went completely against what they were thinking at that point and, and, and hoping their following Jesus would lead and include. But disciples were only looking at everything from a human point of view. And quite frankly, it was an entirely selfish one, wasn't it? So Jesus needed to correct that human and selfish way of thinking. 
According to one biblical scholar, the reason why the Romans would make those condemned to crucifixion carry their own cross to the crucifixion location was to hammer into their minds and all those watching what was going on that the one carrying the cross was forced to submit to the authority they had rebelled against in their crime. That was the whole reason why the Romans did that and why they then made Jesus pick up his cross and carry it. In a twist of cruel irony, Jesus, knowing that this very same experience lay ahead for him, used it back here in Matthew 16 to illustrate his point of true discipleship. He says, if anyone wants to be my follower, they have to show, they submit to the authority they went, they once rebelled against, no matter how painful that act is. But here's the hope in all of this. What Jesus says next in Matthew 16, 25 through 26, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, the whole world, but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Very powerful statement. This world holds no hope for us. And the more we cling to it for any kind of hope, the more we lose. That's part of God's plan for us. And as scary as that seems to us as humans, it's the best thing we could receive from God. I mean, look around us. Look around us. Everything is collapsing in the world right now. There's no hope here. And I pity those who have no hope beyond this world. Because what you see right now, this is it. This is all we have to hope for in this world. Complete collapse. And it's pretty pathetic looking, isn't it? What we see when we look around the world. And that, brothers and sisters, is the entire point. That's the point. I believe there are several things that God is doing in this difficult season right now. And one of those things is to help release the grip we, have made we may have developed on this world and its systems. One of those things is to show us that that's just grasping at smoke. And another thing God is doing right now is showing us that he has a plan that we may not see or even be looking for. That's what we can see right now. And it's nothing but destruction and, and, and there's what we, what we may not be looking for. What we can see right now is nothing but destruction. What we can't see right now and may not be looking for is God's plan. And God's plan is perfect. We may or may not see God's plan, but we can trust it. Because no matter what happens in this world, whether or not our states or our country recovers, and no matter how differently things look coming out of this, and ultimately no matter if we lose our lives, this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Praise God. We exist to live in another home. One that will never be corrupted, 
one that will never be sickened, and one that will never be destroyed. And we exist only in this world only to follow Jesus. Only to follow Jesus. We only exist in this world to submit to the authority we once rebelled against, to pick up our cross. But we have only been saved from uh, uh, the destruction and judgment by only the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we only exist in this world to share that good news with others so they can have that too. Because at the end of all of this, as Jesus says in verse 27 of Matthew 16, he's coming back. He's coming back, brothers and sisters. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And he will set up his perfect kingdom on this earth. And he will exact justice for every evil act done in this corrupt world. We can look all around us and do so with hope. Not for and in this world, but what lays beyond this world. And so, ladies who are mothers, grandmothers, who grieve losses of children, mentors, or who are pouring into the next generation, continue to fulfill those roles with hope. Parents in general, or grandparents, or who are influencing the next generation, continue to fulfill those roles with hope. Raise children in the faith and trust in Jesus because he's their only hope. He's not only your only hope, he's their only hope in this world. This world is not our home. And what we see and how we feel is not all that is going on right now. There's a lot that is unseen that is going on right now. We can't look at our circumstances through merely human eyes. There's a much grander and important and powerful plan going on that is being worked out and will never be thwarted. And no matter what happens, at the end of everything, we have an eternity spent in reveling in the love of Jesus to look forward to. There will be no more sadness, there will be no more loss, and there will be no more tears. There will only be Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian church in Colossians 3.2, set your mind, set it there and leave it there. Don't just pass through. Take your mind and set it on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our message. We thank you for the power and the hope that it gives to us. Not because of anything that we have or nothing that anything this world has, but only what you give us. Lord, I pray that we would place our complete faith and trust in you and in the plan that you established before the foundations of the earth were even laid. Lord, I pray that if there's anything, that, if there's anybody who watched this or listened to this and they have not yet put their faith and trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins and knowing that they'll be in heaven with you someday, I pray that they would recognize that their sin separates them from you. 
Know that you are the only way to God the Father. Know that you are the only way to heaven. Know that your death and resurrection was for them, was on their behalf. And they can take that, they can take that gift and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I know that you died for me and I know that you rose again to life for me. And I want that. I take that. I claim that for myself and I make you the king of my life. I look forward to my eternity spent with you. Lord Jesus, we give to you all all, all that we are and all that we hope for and all that we have. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close out this week's service, video service, I hope that we've all taken something to heart this week. And know that we can put our full and complete trust in Jesus and we can put our full and complete trust in God's plan. And that even though we'll look around the things of this world and even though uh, we'll we'll be scared, we'll be fearful, we may worry that, that we don't need to be in that place. We don't need to stay there. We don't need to live there because we have Jesus and we pray that he would be our vision. He would be what we would focus our eyes on as we go forward in this life. focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that he would be our vision. Go in peace. Amen.